Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Last time on Damages, you heard a little bit about how wild rice got rights. It's part of who we are. You know, it's one of those fundamental core pieces of our identity. We're part of that creation. Something had to give us substance. Something has to, to give us substance. And the agreement was we would remember. And I can look at water and see a spirit there. The unique case names wild rice, which is sacred in Ojibwe culture, as the lead plaintiff. The wild rice case was the first to be filed in tribal court in the U.S. A few non-Native communities have also tried to work rights of nature into their laws. In Ohio, Toledo residents passed the Lake Erie Bill of Rights in 2019, for example. But it met with swift and severe backlash that ultimately led to the state of Ohio passing a preemptive ban on any rights of nature laws. In Pennsylvania, some townships have moved to adopt rights of nature into their government charters, but there too, the opposition has been pretty fierce. We're gonna get into the details of those stories a little later in this season, but today we're gonna look at the US more broadly and why it's so hard to integrate an idea like rights of nature into the American legal system and why the idea is so terrifying to industry. Mr. Olson, are you taking the position that there is no difference in the First Amendment rights of an individual? A corporation, after all, is not endowed by its creator with inalienable rights. So is there any distinction that Congress could draw between corporations and natural human beings purposes of campaign finance. What the court has said in the First Amendment context is that corporations are persons entitled to protection under the First Amendment. Back in 2010, conservatives won a long-running campaign to grant corporations free speech. The Citizens United case was the final win in that long battle, with the Supreme Court granting First Amendment rights to corporations, including the right to political speech and to donate money anonymously. That one court decision has been credited with sparking a huge amount of dark money in politics. And it will probably come as no surprise to hear that a lot of the very same industries that fought so hard for corporate free speech are not at all into the idea of ecosystems having those rights. Welcome back to Damages. I'm Amy Westervelt. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. 
such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. In the United States, the push for rights of nature started with, of all things, Disney. The wonderful world of Disney. In the 1970s, Walt Disney Productions wanted to build a ski resort in Sierra National Forest. The Sierra Club sued them to try to stop it. That case went all the way to the Supreme Court. Our reporter Meg Duff picks up the story here. The largest tree and the largest living thing on the face of the earth. Mr. Zellner, you may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice Berger, and may it please the court, the Sierra Club brought this proceeding against the Secretaries of Agriculture and Interior and their assistants to establish that their plans to authorize a huge private recreational development at Mineral King in Sequoia National Game Refuge, and for a state highway across Sequoia National Park to reach that development were illegal. That's the Sierra Club's lawyer, Leland Salna Jr., arguing before the Supreme Court in November 1971. Just a month before, in October, Walt Disney World opened in Florida. And now, Disney was planning another resort, in Mineral King Valley, in the giant Sequoia's range. Mineral King is located in the Sierra Nevada mountains, approximately 225 miles north of Los Angeles. It is a portion of a 15,000-acre game refuge which Congress created in 1926. Walt Disney Productions has described Mineral King as unsurpassed in natural splendor, perhaps more similar to the European Alps than any other area in the United States, and generously endowed with lakes, streams, cascades, caverns, and matchless mountain vistas. In 1969, the Forest Service accepted a proposal from Disney for a huge resort development at Mineral King. Disney would construct hotels, lodges, restaurants, other permanent facilities so that 14,000 persons could ski at Mineral King at one time. To get there, though, Disney would have to build a busy highway through the heart of Sequoia National Park. To solve the problem of transporting 14,000 persons at one time to Mineral King was a problem. And the state of California agreed to construct a high-standard freeway to dead end at Mineral King, provided that it could cut across the park. It might sound weird, but the idea for the road actually came from the Forest Service. They'd been hoping to make Mineral King a more accessible recreation area for more than 20 years. So it's good for the Forest Service, and it's good for Walt Disney Productions. Who it's not good for are the hikers and the trees. If Californians have learned anything the past few summers, it's that building in fire-prone areas makes natural fire cycles difficult to maintain. 
And this disputed road would lead to a ski resort, which creates a huge conservation problem. That's one reason the Sierra Club filed suit. The question is, does the Sierra Club really have any right to speak for the trees? Solicitor General Erwin Griswold said no. This case, in a very real sense, is the ultimate case on standing. Standing means you need to be able to show that you were hurt in some way. It's the thing that allows you to file a case. If the petitioner here has standing, then I believe it fair to conclude that anyone who asserts an interest in a controversy has standing. Griswold is saying, no injury, no case. It did not allege that it had any financial interest in the controversy. It did not allege the ownership of any property involved or any interference within the activities it is conducting. It did not even allege a special interest in Mineral King. The Solicitor General is saying, really, it's none of their business. If we let the Sierra Club plead this case, things could really spiral. I don't think there's any magic in the fact that the Sierra Club is a club or that has members, or a long and distinguished history, many of which members may well share the interest which its management now advances. If it is the fact that it is a group that gives it standing, how big a group must it be? Three members, or five, or 50, or 50,000? What reason is there for picking any number? If any group has standing because it has an intellectual or emotional interest, does it not inevitably follow that any individual who asserts an interest likewise has standing to raise these legal questions? If the Sierra Club has standing, as Mr. Justice Blackman suggested, would not John Muir have standing? The odd thing about this thesis is it, it didn't come out of an environmental thinking, an environmental law class. It initiated, the thesis initiated in a property class I was teaching. I was teaching the basic property class, the introductory property class, which is the class you can teach without knowing a lot of the technical details. Just one month before that Supreme Court argument, Christopher Stone was just a few hundred miles south of Sequoia National Park at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, teaching his intro to property law class. He was an environmental lawyer and law professor at the University of Southern California for over 50 years. He actually passed away last May, so I wasn't able to talk with him. But I was able to find a lecture he gave back in 1996. It, it was getting towards the end of the hour. And I was trying to think of what would a radically different consciousness that would be law-linked look like. And I said, it would be where nature had rights, uh, uh, trees warming to it, uh, rivers, and the place broke, it was pandemonium. End of the hour, thank goodness, students were, no, that's, you know, this is like enough. And I walked out into the hall, and I, without exaggerating at all, I said to myself, I don't usually put myself in the third person, said, Stone, what have you done now? What Stone had just done was question one of the most fundamental, taken-for-granted premises in Western law, that nature is property and that it exists to be used. The phrase is, whoever owns the soil, it is theirs up to heaven and down to hell. 
Environmental sociologist Colin Jerolmack is an expert on the intersection of property rights and nature. And he says that in the U.S., this idea goes back to the colonial period. So England had the strongest property rights before the United States. And there's a huge caveat, though, to that, to that uh, whoever, you know, owning the soil down the hell part, which was that the crown retained anything valuable underneath the surface. So you technically own the soil, but any gold, silver, oil, uh, precious metals, gas that was there belonged to the crown. And so, you know, the United States inherited property law as it inherited many other forms of law from England. But there was a very conscious decision when the so-called founding fathers, you know, won the Revolutionary War to get rid of those caveats. And this was explicitly, consciously pulling on John Locke, who exerted an incredibly strong force on the American Constitution, who made this argument that it is only through labor that nature becomes valuable. This argument was also used to take Native American land. Early Americans were afraid of the wilderness. And they said, if we leave Indian peoples in, in ownership, they will just waste it as wilderness. That's Robert Miller. I'm a citizen of the Eastern Shawnee tribe of Oklahoma. And I'm a professor at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. John Locke's theory was to put land to its best and highest use. And in American society, that seems to be make the most money off it as you can. Plunder it for its resources. If there's water, use it. Use it even if you use it up or befoul it. If there are, if there's oil or trees or minerals, it's strip mine it until you have it all and then leave it and walk away. And something I tell my classes more than ever, different cultures might see a different definition of the best and highest use. A native culture who's already lived here a thousand years and hopes to live here for another thousand might be a little more in tune to preserving the waters, not cutting every tree, not killing every animal than would corporate America. When Stone said in his law school class that nature could have rights, he was echoing ways of thinking about the land that are not actually new. In doing so, he was rejecting centuries worth of this colonial idea that nature only has value once humans have extracted value from it. The justification was Christianity and civilization, that God wanted European Christians to own these lands and that the Christian God intended that. And somehow Christian Europeans were superior to everyone around the world. That's the idea behind what's called the doctrine of discovery. It goes all the way back to the Crusades and says that land not owned by another Christian state— like land occupied by indigenous people, for example, or by Muslim or Jewish or Hindu or any non-Christian people, was up for grabs. In his college class, Stone was suggesting the opposite, that nature could have value in and of itself. He was saying something that goes against all of Western property law, that nature could be a subject rather than an object to be owned. Legal subjects can be injured. If you can be injured, you can get standing in court and you can plead your own case. In traditional law, if there's an upstream or upriver polluter, a factory is polluting, and someone downriver, call them Jones, is suffering the effects of the pollution, Jones can bring a suit against the polluter. What would the law have to look like to 
correspond to a state of affairs in which the river had rights. I said, one, the suit would have to be brought or bringable in the name of the river. The river would be the plaintiff, not Jones. Secondly, it would be the damage to the river. And third, if relief were awarded, the relief would run to the river. Stone called the USC Library to ask if any other cases like this had been brought before. They told him about the Sierra Club and the Disney Ski Resort. Stone realized that the Sierra Club didn't have standing. But what if Mineral King Valley itself did? What if instead of Sierra Club versus Morton, it was Mineral King versus Morton? Now remember, this is October 1971, and the Supreme Court is set to hear this case in November. So Stone only has one month to figure out a way to somehow smuggle this idea that nature could have rights into the court. And the arguments are already set. There's no way he can put this idea into the mouth of the Sierra Club's lawyer. His best bet is to get it straight to a judge. So Stone starts laying out the argument in an article for the USC Law Review, where it just might be read by Justice Douglas, the most liberal voice on the bench. Justice Douglas said, but why not just essentially follow Stone's position? and let the Mineral King be the plaintiff. This should be called Mineral King against Department of Interior. But Justice Douglas wasn't writing the ruling. He was writing the dissent. The Sierra Club loses the case, although the ski resort never actually gets made and California rethinks the highway to nowhere. The important thing from Stone's point of view is that Justice Douglas writes a dissent. Now, this wild idea that nature could have her day in court is out in the world, from the pen of the esteemed justice himself. People that are, have not strong connections with these wars of the indigenous perspectives uh, think, uh, you know, about uh, what was perhaps uh, the first time that they came across uh, these ideas and they think, okay, it was a book that was written in, in the United States, you know, about whether trees have rights. That would be Stone's book, Should Trees Have Standing? Monica Ferriatinta is a lawyer in London. She says that while Stone may have popularized the idea of the rights of nature, it has a much longer history. But it's not really the rational Western mind that came up with, with these uh, ideas. We are talking about all around the world, indigenous communities. They have very similar approaches to nature and, and the natural world, uh, where they don't see that the human being is more important or that there is a hierarchy where human life, let's say, you know, is more important than this natural world. In a sense, Western ideas about nature have been playing catch up. I think what's important to remember is that so today's legal system is based on a mechanistic view of the world that really emerged during the scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th centuries, which views nature as like a machine composed of fragmented, independent parts. That's Craig Kaufman. I'm an associate professor of environmental politics at the University of Oregon. And according to Kaufman, our law is lagging far behind our science. The foundations of our law haven't really changed much since the 18th century, during the Enlightenment. 
And at that time, lawyers replaced the previous view of the world as a living organism or a community of life. Uh, and this was replaced with a new view of the world as sort of like stocks of independent resources that could be taken and manipulated and exchanged and so forth and so on. And it also emphasized the idea that humans are separate and apart from nature, right? And so can be sort of like the masters of the machine. And so how has that that mechanistic view of the world been working out for us? Not well, uh, right? You know, so it turns out if you move rivers, there's consequences, right? If you destroy the forests that are like the lungs of the world, um, there's consequences. Scientists now understand that the world is not really a collection of discrete parts, but rather it is a dynamic and fluid interconnected community of life that's probably best understood in terms of patterns and relationships. So each piece is dependent on all the others. Monica Ferriatinta told us that much of international human rights law came into being after World War II, but most environmental protections didn't start to come until the 60s and 70s, and the two didn't quite mesh. Kaufman says people started to realize that rights for nature could be a sort of hack of fitting a different way of thinking about nature into our creaky, old Western legal system exactly the kind of consciousness shift that Stone was proposing. In many Western societies, we value things that we value by giving them rights. <laughs> and so that's just the way our system works. And so you sort of adapt it, you know, you, you fit with the, the culture that you have. So in our particular legal system in the United States, for example, Corporate property rights are really king. What Kaufman told me was a story about fracking. Fracking is how we get natural gas. And if you own land where fracking is done, you can make a lot of money off the mineral rights to that land. But it can also poison well water. There are communities where these well systems are their only access to clean drinking water, and people start getting sick, they lose access to potable water. And with fracking, people started to realize that giving nature rights could solve for way more than the Sierra Club's worries about aesthetics and conservation. It could fight childhood cancer. In our legal system, if you wanted to sue, to, to say, the fracking company to force them to stop, you have to show standing in court. And to do that, the burden of proof is really high. And you have to show that you specifically were harmed in some very tangible, concrete way. And it's often really difficult to do that in a way that, that meets the standards of the law. So a family will come and say, you know, my child and, you know, the X percent of the people now have cancer rates that have skyrocketed and these other disease. And my child has this problem. And the lawyer for the fracking company will say, well, how do we know that this problem was caused by the fracking wastewater? It could have been genetic. It could have been secondhand smoke. And it's virtually impossible to draw a direct line of causation. But scientifically, it's very easy to show the direct harm caused to the functioning of the watershed ecosystem 
by injecting this. So if you legally recognize the ecosystem as a subject with rights to maintain the functioning of their cycles, to be restored when damaged, you know, so forth and so on. And then you empower the local community members to speak on behalf of the watershed ecosystem. Then it's much easier to show standing. In the U.S., some communities have started writing the rights of nature into their town charters. They haven't yet won at the federal level, but one case in Grant Township is currently before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Federally recognized tribes are also writing the rights of nature into tribal law. Using the rights of nature as a legal strategy is actually happening around the world. In the United States, it tends to be framed as community rights and democracy. In New Zealand, it tends to be framed according to Maori cosmovision about kinship relationships between Maori tribe, iwi, and the ecosystems in which, you know, that's their ancestral territory. Uh, We have seen also this movement also taking place a a bit in India. You know, in Colombia, we've seen some actions before courts trying to protect rivers and even forests. And Africa tends to be, again, framed by responsibility to be a good custodian for these sacred natural sites. In Europe, it tends to be framed more in terms of ecocide. The Constitution in Ecuador has this acknowledgement that nature has rights, something that doesn't exist in other other, uh, constitutions. In Mexico, they already... I have um, started, you know, to consider introducing the rights of nature into the Constitution. The commonality among all of them is this idea that we have to recognize that, uh, you know, there is this order to the world. We are part of the ecosystems in which we are embedded. We are part of nature, not separate from it, and that we have to learn to live within nature's rules. Next, things are about to get weird, both for Stone and for the legal system itself. That story after the break. I'm Meg Duff, and this is Damages. about rights of nature for a while, but right when I was starting to dig into it a little bit more, this great documentary came out. It's called Invisible Hand. It's the third film from directors Joshua Probanek and Melissa Troutman and executive producer Mark Ruffalo. It's won seven Best Documentary Awards and received laurels from 22 international film festivals. It's an excellent deep dive on the subject of rights of nature if you want to dig into it even more after listening to this series. I highly, highly recommend it. It's a paradigm-shifting documentary that does not leave viewers in total despair, but actually provides some inspirational solutions, strategies, and stories that will move you to take action where you live. If you haven't seen Invisible Hand, you're missing out. Go to invisiblehandfilm.com for more on where to watch and how to support this great work. First came the poetry. Law poetry, 
published in the Journal of the American Bar Association. If Justice Douglas had has his way, oh come not that dreadful day, we'll be sued by lakes and hills seeking a redress of ills. Great mountain peaks of name prestigious will suddenly become litigious. Our brooks will babble in the courts seeking real damages for torts. How could I rest beneath a tree if it may soon be suing me? Or enjoy the playful porpoise while it's seeking habeas corpus. Okay. This poem was written by a lawyer named John Naff. Every beast within his paws will clutch in order to show cause. The courts, besieged on every hand, will crowd with suits by chunks of land. Ah, but vengeance will be sweet, since this must be a two-way street. I'll promptly sue my neighbor's tree for shedding all its leaves on me. Take that, tree huggers. If something has rights, shouldn't it also have responsibilities? In Western law, the idea of holding nature responsible is ridiculous. That's why contracts have that section waiving liability for acts of God, for nature's whims. But something about Stone's argument took hold. Suits began to come up around the country. And around the world. And sometimes they were even succeeding. But Stone was having second thoughts. See, he had been out to prove a point. His article had been about a legal question, a theory. It's a legal thesis about how we can fit non-humans into a legal system. His question was, could we? He argued that we could. But now that his argument was out in the world, there was a different question. Not could we, but should we? The problems are rich and wonderful. I mean, there are difficulties that make this harder than a lot of people who readily embraced it saw. And I was the more worried about this. For example, if you Suppose you have a nuclear plant that is warming a river because the water runs through, the cooling water runs through the nuclear plant and warms the river. What effect does this have on the ecosystem? Well, it raises the temperature of the water. Is this good or bad for nature? Well, of course, it immediately becomes a silly question, a difficult question. Some parts of nature that were thriving before don't do as well. Sea manatees, it turns out, uh, love the higher temperature water. So how do you run this Stonian system with difficulty? Because if you have a guardian for the manatees saying, this is fine. You know, and a guardian for other parts of the ecosystem saying there are, you know, how, what do you look to? All of these questions about how to integrate the rights of nature into Western courts is something judges and lawyers outside the U.S. have been grappling with in the decades since Stone first started talking about all this. Which ecosystems have rights, and how does the government decide? And what if the rights of one ecosystem impose on the rights of another? What makes an appropriate guardian for nature? Who should get that role? And what responsibilities does it come with? These questions are becoming less theoretical as more and more cases set precedents. In the next few episodes, we're going to get into how some countries and courts have answered these questions and what it really looks like to give nature rights. We're going to start with Ecuador, the first country to write rights of nature into its constitution all the way back in 2008. That country's constitutional court, its equivalent to the U.S. Supreme Court, just ruled on one of the biggest rights of nature cases in the world. 
And one of those cases before the Constitutional Court of Ecuador is a case to protect Los Cedros Forest Reserve from mining. It's a very, very ecologically diverse um, forest that will be gone if um, concessions for mining um, put forth by the Ecuadorian government uh, go through. That story next time. Damages is an original Critical Frequency production. This episode was reported and written by Meg Duff. Our editor and senior producer is Sarah Ventry. Sound design by Ray Pang. Mixing and mastering by Mark Bush. Additional editing by Martha Troyan, citizen of Obishikakong Laksul First Nation. The show is written and reported by me, Amy Westervelt, with additional reporting by Karen Savage, Meg Duff, and Lyndall Rollins. Our fact checker is Wudan Yan. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton of the First Amendment Project. Our theme song this season is Bird in the Hand by Forenown. Artwork is by Matthew Fleming. The show is supported in part by a generous grant from the File Foundation. If you'd like to support our work, please rate or review the podcast wherever you're listening and share it with friends. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.